Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and if you don't know who I am, I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and I am so delighted to be in this gathering with you this morning. As, as a local church pastor, I get a front row view to see God's work being advanced. There are lots of great benefits to being a pastor. We get to hear wonderful stories of sin being overcome, of people coming to faith in Christ. We get to uh, hear stories of marriages being uh, repaired and restored. We get to hear stories of uh, and witness uh, uh, nagging sin for years that have been repented of and brothers and sisters now walking in holiness. Pastors of local churches have a front row view to see the work of God's gospel being advanced. Right? And as members of a local church, we do as well. This morning I had the opportunity to uh, be at First Baptist Church on High Street, uh, meeting some saints there and answering some questions uh, it was a, uh, an encouraging time to, to hear what uh, the saints at uh, FBC uh, seek to uh, have done in uh, 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 that part of the neighborhood and with their ministry. They, like us, desire to see the gospel advanced uh, on High Street, on Potomac Street, in Washington County, in the uh, wonderful, beautiful state of Maryland. The advance of the gospel. That is a wonderful thing to consider when life is going pretty well, right? When we're not facing difficulty, when we're not facing various trials, when we're not facing challenges of various sorts, it's pretty easy to see then God at work. But the greater difficulty is to see God at work when life is not so ideal, when various challenges do come when various sufferings are before us. We may ask questions like, where is God? Why is he letting this happen to me? What is he doing? Why? It's a pervasive question in the face of challenge and difficulty. Why? What is God doing? What could he possibly do in this suffering? Why did he choose me to bear this? One of the greatest challenges that we face as Christians is not necessarily physical persecution or being socially ostracized for the outlandish beliefs that we might hold. Rather, one of the greatest challenges that we face as Christians is when our confidence in God's goodness and his graciousness to us is threatened when our circumstances are less than ideal. One of the greatest challenges we face is when our confidence in God's goodness and graciousness to us is threatened when circumstances are less than ideal. When circumstances spring up that we neither expected nor did we hope would spring up. Our greatest challenge is to believe God when life is hard. And life is hard. We oftentimes find ourselves in difficult positions. Difficult seasons of life, maybe difficult seasons in marriage, difficult seasons in parenting, difficult seasons at work. We find ourselves in precarious situations. Well, as modern 21st century Americans, it is not very difficult to get out of most precarious situations with a smartphone and a credit card, right? We often can find the easy answer online. We can get the car towed when the tire blows out, right? Smartphone and a credit card can get us out of difficult, precarious situations. But when the challenge before us seems so overcoming, we ask, where is God? We struggle to believe God when life is hard. We don't struggle necessarily to believe in God. We'll probably all have some sort of intellectual assent that God exists, that God is real, God is true. We struggle to believe who God has revealed himself to be when the challenge before us just won't leave. We struggle to believe in the promises he has made to his people. It would seem that the suffering and the struggle that is in front of us is greater than the God who has promised to be faithful to us. Maybe you believe, you struggle to believe that God is one who is altogether good 
and exercising a wise and loving providence over every aspect and dimension of your life, as well as the lives of the others, saints in the church. Where is God? Why is he letting this happen? Well, the Philippian church probably asked the very same question that you and I might be asking of the Lord in the face of great challenge and adversity. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Kids, if you are reading your Bibles and you need to find a helpful tool to remember where uh, Philippians is, just remember, Greeks eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's a silly little mnemonic device, but I have found it to be really helpful, and I'm in my 30s. And so if you can remember that when you're in your 30s, all praise be to God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. The chapter numbers are the larger numbers, if you're new to reading the Bible. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers. Uh, So follow along with me in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. If you don't have a physical Bible available, there are physical Bibles available at the resource table back there. Uh, You can also follow along on the screens. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel." The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. The main point that we'll be looking at in this text. If I can just summarize my entire sermon to one brief sentence, if I can just draw from the text what Paul desires for us to understand and uh, uh, stand on, it's this. Whether we live or die, Christ be glorified. Whether we live or die, Christ be glorified. Paul's life circumstances, perspective, and desires as demonstrated in this passage is going to teach us this morning that God's providence orchestrates our difficult circumstances to advance his eternal purposes. God's providence orchestrates our difficult circumstances. All of them. Not just one of them. Every single one of them. Every single difficult circumstance that we find ourselves in Seek to serve to advance his eternal purposes. So where is God in our difficulty? Right there. He's right with us. Whether we live or die, Christ be glorified. And there's two reasons that I want to draw from the text this morning to encourage you, dear saints, to trust God even amid difficult circumstances. Difficult marriage, difficult season of parenting, difficult season at work, whatever challenge or suffering you face, let me give you two reasons to still trust God, even, in amid, even amid difficult circumstances. The first reason 
is that God's providence advances the gospel. God's providence advances the gospel. The second reason we'll look at is God's providence magnifies the glory of Christ. God's providence magnifies the glory of Christ. So let's look at the first reason to trust God, even amid difficult circumstances. God's providence advances the gospel. So we have learned over the last two weeks that the Philippian Christians, they cared deeply about Paul. They were concerned about Paul's well-being as he was in prison. Maybe you don't know, but Paul, writing this gem of Christian encouragement, he did so in a Roman prison. And Paul wrote this letter to both uh, alleviate the concern of the Philippian Christians, the concern that they had for him, and he sought to encourage them to rejoice in God's providence even in the middle of Paul's own circumstances. He tells them, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul, being a loving brother, a loving shepherd, he wrote to the Philippian Christians to alleviate their concerns and to lift their eyes upward to Christ. He wanted them to know and to not have a single doubt that what has happened to him, being imprisoned, is actually serving to advance the gospel. It's a little countercultural and counterintuitive to think that, well, if you're muzzled and chained, uh, how are you going to advance the proclamation of a message, right? But that is God's mysterious divine providence. What has happened to Paul has actually served to advance the gospel. Despite his present circumstance, he wanted them to know that his life was not being wasted away in prison. His aim here was more than just sending a friendly general update with a thank you note for the gift that the church had given to, them, uh, to, to, to him. He aimed to build up the Philippian church by way of displaying God's sovereign providence amid his present adversity. Notice what Paul wasn't saying in verses 12 and 13. He was not saying to them, look at my horrible chains. Woe is me, obviously God has forgotten me. God must not love me anymore. Clearly God hates me that he would put me here. That is not what Paul was saying. Paul was confident in God and God's good purposes even in chains. Even though his circumstances were less than pleasant, Paul's confidence was in God. His confidence was not going to be shaken by his present, temporary, momentary circumstances. His confidence did not fluctuate, even though the conditions of his life did. I believe that Paul was setting an example for the Philippians by way of this addressing to them, setting an example for them to emulate so that when suffering and difficult trials would come their way, they would be equipped to walk blamelessly and to walk rejoicing in God and trusting in Him. Notice how Paul, he did not dismiss his circumstances, nor did he flaunt a false humility. He, he, he didn't draw attention to himself and then quickly say, oh, but don't worry about me, I'm totally fine. No, he, he genuinely and honestly shares that he is in the middle of difficult circumstances. But he is not the source of his confidence. Notice also, Paul did not complain to the Philippians. There's no grumbling or complaining in Paul's words. Oftentimes, we might feel warranted that uh, we can complain and grumble about our difficult circumstances. Uh, maybe we disguise that in Christianese language by, oh brother, I hope you pray for me, and then we spend 10 minutes complaining about a situation that we're in, right? Or maybe we spend time gossiping about the person who is, who is our adversity, who is in charge of this difficult circumstance we're in. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is not complaining about his Roman oppressors. He's not complaining or grumbling about those who seek to afflict him. He doesn't grumble or complain. Notice also, unlike uh, Job's wife, uh, who called on Job to curse God and die, Paul did not curse God, nor did he die. 
He did not make demands of God or of the Christians at Philippi. No demands, no grumbling, no whining, no complaining. Completely absent from Paul's character is selfish self-pity. He is not a man who seeks self-pity. Even in his weakness, God's grace was sufficient. Because God's grace was sufficient for Paul in his weakness, he could say these words to the church at Philippi. Chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He said these words while being imprisoned in chains and being afflicted. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul said these words because he trusted in the sufficiency of the grace of God while being imprisoned in a dark prison cell, that the church at Philippi would be lights in the world. Because of God's sufficient grace, Paul could say this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Again, I say, I will say, rejoice. In the middle of difficult circumstances, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. I get, uh, again, I will say, rejoice. I will rejoice. Do you notice here that what sustained Paul was not his own strength, his own wisdom, his own ability to just grit his teeth and, and just push through? It was God's sufficient grace. God's grace sustained him. It was God's sufficient, sustaining grace that enabled Paul to to do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing. It was God's sufficient, sustaining grace that enabled Paul to rejoice in the Lord and to not be anxious. Do you find yourself anxious and worrying, fearful of what might come before you? Do you know what sustained Paul in the midst of the Philippian church's anxieties and worries for him? It was not strategically thinking about what, uh, how he is going to orchestrate his next steps. What sustained him was God's grace. No matter how strong each of us may be, our strength will inevitably fail. But God's grace, dear friend, is completely and perfectly sufficient to carry us through our suffering. Paul has this remarkable perspective because of the sufficiency of God's grace. The world will tell you that your suffering means God has either forgotten about you or God has abandoned you. But notice Paul. He didn't share this perspective. Paul had no notion of belief that his present predicament was some unfortunate accident that God didn't see coming or was unaware of. The idea of say la vie, it is what it is, it was absent from Paul's mind and his vocabulary. Paul was convinced that his adversity itself was providentially turning out for the advancement of the gospel. Paul, in his language, does not say, woe is me, look at my suffering, eh, but at least the gospel's being advanced. Paul is saying, no, My imprisonment, my current affliction is advancing the gospel. The gospel is not being advanced despite his imprisonment. The gospel is being advanced through his imprisonment. the, The imprisonment of Paul was the divine instrument that God was using mysteriously, divinely, providentially to advance the gospel. So, you might be asking, well, how was Paul's imprisonment pressing God's good purposes forward? Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is saying, my imprisonment has shown the entire imperial guard that I am here for Christ. In other words, the gospel itself had become known throughout the entire imperial guard. Well, who is this imperial guard? Paul's guards were the elite of the elite. They were not uh, your average uh, night duty mall cop swinging his uh, nightstick, uh, flashing his light and making sure all the doors were locked. This was the elite of the elite in charge of guarding the life of Caesar himself. 
So they were trained killers, expert hand-to-hand combatants. They were elite. They were supremely trained. These guys were not to be trifled with. And Paul says, Caesar's entire imperial guard now have heard the gospel and they know who Jesus is. Paul's guards were the elite. They were entrusted to protect Caesar. And chained to these type of elite warrior men, Paul proclaimed the gospel. Paul prayed for the magnification of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. Chained to these elite combatants, Paul was singing hymns about the gospel to God. Imagine that. Chained to a man who can kill you in umpteen million ways, and you are singing cheerfully, loudly, so that all the crews would hear you. And not only did the imperial guard hear the prison, not just inside the prison walls, but Paul goes so far as to say, also outside. So it's not just the guards who have heard, but to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So we don't know who all the rest include, Maybe it included Caesar's administrative staff or his servants, his cooks, maybe the captains of his military forces. Maybe it was the prison janitors. If the Roman prisons had any janitors, maybe it was other prisoners, right? We don't know, but what we do know is the gospel had become known. Paul had reason to praise God because the gospel had become known. Now, notice also Paul's blamelessness. Notice his blamelessness. Paul was not in prison for any wrongdoing. When we think of uh, being sent to prison, as modern Americans, we probably think, well, you're guilty of something. You did something wrong. You broke the law and you did what you weren't supposed to do. Not so with Paul. And Paul goes so far as to say, my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul, in effect, was telling the Philippian Christians something deeper than just his momentary status or predicament. He was highlighting something of the true nature of Christian discipleship. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with Jesus' words in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Kids, that would be a really good verse to ask your parents Uh, What does Jesus mean by this? So maybe after uh, church, maybe during lunch or at dinner at the table, maybe ask mom and dad, what what does Jesus mean in Luke 9, 23? What does it mean to come after him? What does it mean for me to follow Christ? And I'm fully confident your parents will give you a very helpful answer. Now, notice Paul. Having denied himself and taken up his cross, what was Paul's aim? Paul's aim was to make the gospel known. It would not appear from this text that Paul's aim was to be made free. Uh, he doesn't seem to be uh, strategizing ways with his defense attorney to scheme an argument in a way that will shame the prosecuting side and now he'll be free. Paul's aim was to make the gospel known. He did not view himself as just being an innocent man on trial, offended by false charges against him, demanding that his rights be respected. Rather, Paul saw it was the gospel of his Lord Jesus Christ that was on trial. He was being in prison for the defense of the gospel. Do you know why uh, this uh, behavior of Paul's is uh, such a remarkable thing to uh, consider? Because it's not human. This is not normal. We don't view this to be something that people would normally do. That's because this is evidence of God's supernatural grace and God's supernatural strength that you and I simply just cannot muster up in and of ourselves. Paul was confident, even in the midst of his circumstances, the gospel would continue to advance for the joy of the church and the glory of Christ. Why do we take, as Hagerstown Church, the gospel so seriously? Because the gospel advances for the glory of Christ and for your joy. We have reason to rejoice in God because his sovereign providence advances the gospel. For Paul, his chains were not a source of embarrassment. Uh, Just by way of application, I would ask you, 
in, so, in some social settings, do you feel it to be a little uncomfortable and awkward to identify yourself as a Christian? Maybe because the term might have certain baggage that another person might perceive. Right? They might think that, well, you hate a certain group of people or you, know, you believe certain things that's not culturally so norm anymore. Right? Do you feel it a little bit awkward? Maybe, maybe a little embarrassing? Well, if that's you, be encouraged by Paul. Because for Paul, his chains were not a source of embarrassment or awkwardness. For Paul, his chains for Christ was a cause to boast and rejoice in God. He was in a physically awkward situation, but he had reasons to boast and rejoice in God. Now, by way of application, again, let me, let me encourage you to consider Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. If you have your Bibles, let me also encourage you, highlight that verse. Underline it, highlight it, circle uh, chapter 13, verse 3. Here's what, it, here's what the text says. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are being mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, why do I uh, bring up Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3? Well, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting the church to be intimately acquainted with those who have been put into prison and those who are being mistreated for the cause of Christ. Why? Since you also are in the body. Since you also are in the body. The command that the writer of Hebrews gives to uh, the church is not, quote-unquote, to give imprisoned Christians a fleeting thought. He says, but as though in prison with them. This is what the Philippians were doing. The Philippians were giving thought to Paul while he was in prison. They were remembering him as though in prison with them. And brothers and sisters, we are called to do exactly the same thing for Christians today who are in prison around the world for the cause of Christ. The same command applies to us. What the Philippians were doing for Paul, we are called to be doing the same thing. But practically speaking, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Chris, I don't really know anybody in prison for the cause of Christ. I don't know anybody who's been put into prison or being mistreated because they are a Christian and they are seeking to advance the gospel. Fair enough. Maybe you've heard stories of Christian martyrs through history, right? Uh, the, probably the most famous one is uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Maybe, maybe a lot of you have read through various uh, sections of that little book. Maybe you've been paying attention to what's been going on in Afghanistan over the last few weeks. Politics aside, geopolitical policies aside, uh, did you know that Afghan pastors, amid their country being swallowed up by the Taliban, are asking the church around the world to pray? They're asking the church to pray, to remember them in prayer. One Afghan pastor, when asked if he was in physical danger, said, not only me, but my family too, because of me. And when I read this, Hebrews 13.3 came to mind because not only am I a pastor of a local church, but I also have a family. And I imagined what it would be like for my family to be in physical danger because of me. Another pastor asked the church to pray for financial issues because no one can take out money from the bank and ATMs are empty. It's hard to feed your wife and your children when you don't have the cash to buy bread with. Brothers and sisters, we are being asked by our fellow Afghan brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing danger and persecution and possibly death that we would pray for the Lord to strengthen them in their faith that they would, as one Afghan pastor put it, stay strong in the Lord, who is the sovereign king. Hear these words from another brother who spent time in an Afghan prison for his faith in Christ. He said, We can trust that our Lord is mighty and will care for his children. Our hope is not in politics, but in Jesus who is the king. 
Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Afghan pastors are praying this same thing that Paul encouraged the Christians in Thessalonica to pray. That the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored, just as it has happened among us. Church, pray for the church located in the most hostile nations in the world, like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, India, my homeland. Pray for the gospel to advance there. Pray for the gospel to advance in, advance in Nigeria, Egypt, the Central African Republic, Burkina Faso, Colombia, Cameroon, Mali, Sri Lanka, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, just to name a few. If you're running out of things to pray for, there's a whole list. Pray for the church to advance. Pray for these nations. Pray for their leaders. Pray for just laws and the basic respect for human life. Pray for the persecuted church seeking to faithfully hold fast to Christ in these difficult places. While we in the West face our own set of challenges, our own set of difficult predicaments and, and difficulties, let us remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since we are in the body. Moving on to verse 14. Notice the result of Paul's imprisonment. Notice the result of his, his imprisonment. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So contextually speaking, these Christians were probably living under the rule of Nero when Paul wrote this letter. Many of us might be a little familiar with who Nero is, but Nero is most famous for persecuting Christians. He was persecuting Christians. The Philippians were probably aware of the persecution that was occurring across the Roman Empire. And on top of that knowledge, who gets imprisoned? It's the Apostle Paul. It's the Apostle Paul who is now in, in prison. So, de facto, we could understand why some would retreat in fear. We could probably sympathize with Christians who would be afraid that they are going to be next to be persecuted and put into prison. But, in God's divine providence, that's not what happened. Instead of retreating in fear, by God's grace, most of the Christians had become more confident in the Lord because of Paul's adversity, and, as a result, they were bolder to speak the word without fear. They did not have religious liberty to secure their proclamation of the gospel. What did they have? God's grace and Paul in chains. This is God's power at work. The lesson that Paul wanted the Philippians to learn is that God's sovereign providence advances the gospel, and that is the lesson for us as well. So when we think of God in the midst of difficult circumstances, when we think about, well, what's another way that we've seen God's providence working itself out in the unlikeliest of situations? Oh, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? In my study and preparation for uh, this sermon, uh, Pastor Sam Storms was really helpful for me in my study to remember a few other biblical examples. Most prominently, when you think of a biblical character who seemingly suffered unjustly, does Job come to mind? Do you think of Job? It's probably not hard to consider. He, he appears to be this larger-than-life kind of in individual who lost everything. He lost his family, his livelihood, his health. But one thing he did not lose were some less-than-helpful friends who gave him some really bad counsel. In, a, in the middle of his great pain and loss, Job's faith was preserved by God and pointed to the sufficiency of God. God was not absent in the midst of Job's suffering. God's sovereign providence in Job's life served to advance his eternal purposes. And today, we are both instructed in the faith on account of Job's life. And by way of his suffering, our faith is strengthened. Well, let's quickly look at another character. Who, who's another biblical character who seemingly suffered unjustly? 
Who comes to mind? Old Testament history is really helpful. And so we think of, well, according to my manuscript, Joseph. Another character who suffered unjustly, let me encourage you to consider Joseph. Joseph, who was the beloved son of Jacob. Joseph, who was the object of jealousy of his brothers, who schemed and plotted evil against him to kill him. Uh, by way of uh, just reminder, kids, if you have multiple siblings, don't be jealous of your siblings, but love them. Joseph, who was thrown into a pit to be dragged out only to live out his life in slavery, who was then thrown into an Egyptian prison, and Joseph, who finally rose through the ranks to become second in command under Pharaoh. It's a great example of lifting yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Not so. Do you remember how Joseph finally responded to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20? Here's another verse that you should highlight, underline, circle, mark up. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So notice that Joseph points to God's divine mystery and his divine providence, and he shows don't just think that this is imaginary. This is actually happening. You meant this to be evil. God has meant this to be good so that many would be kept alive. And guess what? You want to see the fruit of God's providence? Look around. People are alive. Now, God's providence through Joseph's life literally saved the lives of countless people and preserved the line for the coming of Christ. Many will read the account of Joseph's life and they'll try to draw out moral lessons. Lessons like, well, like Joseph, we should be honest uh, and we should run from temptation when we see temptation. It's not necessarily wrong, probably helpful to some degree, but if we pay closer attention to Joseph's life, we'll see that Joseph points us to Jesus, the true beloved son who was tossed into the deep, dark pit of the grave, who by God's power rose again to bring life to his people. Jesus, who would provide redemption for his people who were in bondage to sin. God's sovereign providence in Joseph's difficult circumstances brought about to us today in Hagerstown, Maryland, the gift of the gospel. Now, speaking of Jesus, here's Sam Storms again. Uh, this sermon would be less than helpful for you if I did not talk about Jesus. Here's Storms. No greater example of this principle can be found than what we see in Jesus himself, whose death on a cross appeared to be the end of the kingdom of God and any hope for deliverance and forgiveness. Yet Paul declares in Colossians 2 that the instrument of his death, the cross, was, in a gloriously ironic twist, the very means by which God defeated and humiliated the demonic forces and brought us freedom from guilt and condemnation. What a gloriously ironic twist. If you are new to our church, if you are visiting with us today, or maybe you don't identify yourself as a Christian, there's one thing that I want to encourage you with that you take away from our gathering. It's that we are a community of people defined by, shaped by, and delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about what Jesus Christ has done to reconcile sinners like us to God. We are a people who delight in the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, who lived a perfectly sinless life, one that you and I cannot say we have done, who died a death on the cross that you and I, for our sin, rightfully deserved to die. Why did he die on the cross? To bear God's wrath in the place of all who would place their faith and their trust in him, all who would believe in him. He rose from the grave three days later, and by faith, he gives eternal life to his people. 
It's only by repenting of our sin and placing our faith and our trust in Christ can we experience the complete and total forgiveness of our sins and walk in a new eternal life with God. There's a reason why we delight in the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of his gospel. And if you want to understand more, if, if this is the first time or maybe the next time that you've heard the gospel and you have questions, I will be standing right over there. So please come talk to me and I would be happy to talk to you more about why we as Christians believe the gospel is the best news that we have ever heard. Let's continue moving on here in verses 15 to 17. Paul reminded the Philippians that the gospel would be advanced. God's purposes would not be thwarted. The gospel was being advanced by others who were growing bolder to speak the word without fear. But notice that in the text, Paul also says that the gospel was also being advanced by those that we would not assume, that we would not believe. There was another unlikely group advancing the gospel. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. A very interesting set of people here who are advancing the gospel and the cause of Christ. Paul was keenly aware, and he wanted the Philippian Christians to understand as well, that some Christians proclaimed Christ out of pure motives and love. But there was another group, we don't know who they were, but there was another group who they were indeed preaching Christ, but out of impure motives. Motives like envy and rivalry. And Paul didn't mince words. He said, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in imprisonment. Well, for a guy like Paul, if Christ is being proclaimed, how is he going to be afflicted? Well, he's speaking of the motives that's driving this group of people to proclaim Christ. They are not doing this out of love for the church or love for Paul. They are doing this to seek their own platform. Maybe their impure motives were jealousy, perhaps, of Paul's apostleship or a spirit of partisanship. The very motives that were driving this group to proclaim Christ, envy and rivalry, they're the same vices that are listed, that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, that he says God condemns. You contrast this group's motives with Paul's, and you'll very clearly see the difference. This group proclaims Christ out of envy. Paul, on the other hand, rejoices that the gospel is being proclaimed. Do you notice the difference there? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul, he lays bare the motives for what drove his gospel ministry. He said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see the difference? Envy and rivalry on one hand. Love that issues from a good conscience on, on the other. Uh, if I uh, might say, influence, position, platform, power, these are intoxicating values that when fueled by selfish ambition leave destruction in its wake. Church, pray for your pastors. I'm not trying to be self-seeking here, but really for the glory of Christ and the, the advancement of the gospel and the good of the church, pray for your pastors. Pray that the Lord would keep us from temptations like this that drove this rival group. Pray that our preaching of Christ would be sincere out of love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Pray for us. And while you're praying, consider the second reason why we should trust in God, even in the middle of our difficult circumstances. Second reason, God's providence magnifies the glory of Christ. God's providence magnifies the glory of Christ. Notice how Paul reacts. So he is in the middle of bad news, he's in prison. There's good news, the gospel's advanced. And then there's more bad news. People are seeking to afflict him. So how does he react? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It is remarkable, Paul's perspective here. It's remarkable 
how Paul shares very little also about the afflictions that he suffered. He's not telling them, hey, look at me, look at me, feel bad for me, have pity on me. He's not doing that. Sam Storms, again, was really helpful here. He says, even more remarkable is the complete absence of self-pity. He makes no attempt to generate compassion for himself. There's not a single word of complaint. There's no griping about the Romans, no bitterness towards other Christians, no resentment toward God, no, why me, Lord? Rather, Paul looks on his situation in prison as a divinely orchestrated setup designed to get the gospel into a place where it otherwise might never never have reached. He rejoices that the gospel is proclaimed. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, by life or by death. confidence twofold. The church was praying for him, and God himself was his help. It was not a defense attorney that was his help. It was not cleverly crafted arguments. It was not cleverly schemed petitioning. God himself was Paul's help. Paul embodied the posture of the psalmist in Psalm 121. If you are currently discouraged, going through difficulty, going through trials, let me encourage you to reflect on Psalm 121 this week. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. Who keeps, who keeps you uh, will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Where does our help come from? Well, we can probably find ways to uh, uh, strategize our ways out of precarious situations, but our help is the Lord. If you are suffering today, going through difficulty, if life has been hard and the burdens you bear have been heavy, dear saint, this same hope that belonged to Paul, this posture that he embodied from Psalm 121, this same hope is for you. Whether by life or by death, Paul had one singular passion, the magnification of the glory of Christ. Probably the, uh, one of the most popular quote-unquote life verses that you'll find in evangelical churches, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says in effect in verse 21, if I live, Christ be magnified. If I die, Christ be gained. Paul could not assume what was going to uh, be the result of his Roman imprisonment. He had confidence to believe what God was going to do, but he tells the Philippian Christians and gives them hope. If I live, Christ be magnified, and if I die, Christ be gained. Literally, living equals Christ. Dying equals gain. All of my life is to be spent for the magnification of the glory of Christ. And if I die, then the purpose of my life finds its fulfillment by gaining Christ. What are you living for, friend? What drives you? If you filled in the blank for to me to live is blank, how do you answer that? How do you fill in that blank? What comes to your mind effortlessly? For to me to live is this relationship I'm in? Uh, For to me, to live is uh, my career, a life of comfort, wealth. I think if you answer that question, what am I living for, it's going to be really revealing. Because for Paul, to live was Christ. Period. Full stop. It was not the advancement of his own platform, position, power, or comfort. It was the glory and the magnification of Jesus. There is nothing more that he could live for than the glory of Jesus Christ. And if he died, he did not face loss. He only had gain. If you are an Irish Christian, maybe you've heard this old prayer 
that is attributed to St. Patrick of Ireland. But Patrick was attributed to say something very similar to what Paul says in verse 21. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Christ, do you want to live for something? Live for Christ. If Christ glorified is not the aim of your life, let me kindly challenge you, aim higher. Aim higher. Paul's chief end ultimately was not himself. Paul's chief end was to magnify the glory of God. To live was to display the glorious beauty of himself? No, of Jesus. To die meant he would gain because he would be present with the glorious Christ. Paul, though, recognizes he's still alive. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It is remarkable how unquestionably Christ-centered Paul was. And at the same time, he's not just seeking his own self-interest and what is good for him. It is better for Paul to die, depart, and be with Christ. But Paul is unbelievably pouring out his life for the church. He highlights two options. If I live, then that means I have more opportunity to magnify Christ. If I die, then there is nothing but glorious gain. He's hard-pressed between the two. Have you ever been in the middle of a decision where really either option is going to be really good for you and you just don't know how to answer this question? What am I supposed to do? Well, Paul was seeing that from a meta level. What am I to do with my life? I'm going to magnify Christ. What am I going to do if I die? I'm going to gain Christ. What a, what a fruitful return on investment. When we read this, we cannot take this to mean that Paul was demeaning being alive. His clear, he's clear that living has profit. Make much of Jesus. But in uh, desiring to, to, to depart and to be with Christ, he's demonstrating that the prize that is to be gained in death Christ is greater than any prize that can be found on this side of eternity. Gaining Christ is going to be better than a textbook marriage. Gaining Christ will be more satisfying than have perfectly behaved children. Gaining Christ is going to be more satisfying than any relationship, any career, any accolade that will be showered upon you. Do you know why? Because all of those things have an expiration date. Christ stands in heaven eternally, and he is our gain. He is our gain. Paul keeps this in mind as he encourages the Philippian church. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Look at, look at him saying, I know what I desire, but it is better for you if I don't immediately get what I want. He is saying, it is better that my life for you be poured out for you. It is better for you that I remain here alive. Convinced of this, convinced that this is going to be good for them, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Paul knows what the end is going to be here of his imprisonment. It's going to be the blessing of the church and it's going to be their progress and joy in the faith. His difficult circumstances, he did not see him as the end of it. It was the Philippian church. It's their progress in the faith. It's their joy in the faith that Paul knows, if I stay here, I'm going to help you to advance. I'm going to help you to grow in Christ. I'm going to help you to delight in Christ so that you would have ample cause to glory in Christ. Your sanctification however slow it might be, however painful it might be right now, however difficult it is to get past what feels like this never-ending obstacle of sin and sanctification, 
your sanctification is going to give you ample cause to glory in Christ. Remember that. Remember that. You will have ample reason to glory in Christ. Christian, if you are overwhelmed, exhausted, discouraged, weighed down, burdened, overcome by difficulty and suffering, this is not a trite answer, but let me encourage you, brother and sister, deeply loved by Christ and the church, look to him. Look to Christ. Rest in Christ and you will find rest for your weary souls. The world will disappoint you. The self-help books will fail you. Christ will deliver for you. The world may pay no attention to you in your trials, but in God's economy, your present sufferings and difficulties will not go unnoticed, dismissed, or wasted. By faith in Christ, Christians have this hope that God will use our adversities in this life to advance his good purposes. His good purposes include both our progress in the faith and our joy in him. We may not understand on this side of eternity what the specific fruit of those purposes might be, nor why God chose to go about his purposes the way he has. But dear brother and sister, by God's grace, don't give up. Don't give up. There is coming a day when we will no longer wonder what the purpose of our sufferings was. Momentary difficulties are not proof that God has left you or has forgotten about you. The suffering that is gripping you presently is not proof that God has withdrawn his love for you. The slowness of your sanctification is not proof that God is done with you. You might think you're done, but God's not. Take heart in knowing that God's providence is exercised in every aspect and dimension of your life. Can God turn your affliction, your momentary setbacks, your current difficulties into a God-glorifying, soul-enriching, church-blessing opportunity to advance the gospel and magnify Christ? Yes. Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To us. Glory is coming. Life is hard. We are not done yet. Glory is coming. And most importantly, God is not done. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In your difficulty, Christ intercedes for you right now. Paul continues. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was Paul's hope, even in prison, even in chains, even when the future seemed dark. This was Paul's hope. And if you are in Christ today, this hope belongs to you. So whether we live or we die, Christ be glorified. Let's pray. Father, that is our hope and our desire that you receive the glory that you are due, that whether we are alive or whether we die, that Christ be glorified. Would you, Lord, bless us to pour our lives out, to be spent for the sake of your gospel being advanced, for the church being built up, for Christ's glory to be magnified. We rejoice in Christ now, 
And we trust and pray that the work that you've begun in us and in the advancing of the gospel, you will bring it to completion. So we rejoice, Lord, and we place our trust and our faith in you, even when the future seems unknown, and even if the difficulty before us will not be uh, erased. We rejoice in you. Help us, God, now by your grace. Sustain us, fill us, help us, strengthen us. Lead us, Lord, to rejoice in Christ. May Christ be glorified in our lives. And we rejoice that Christ will be gained in death. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.